good to have you here this morning. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Acts. That's what we're going to be studying this morning. See how far we can get in the text today. We study the Bible verse by verse, word for word, verse for verse, chapter for chapter, book for book, you know? And it takes time to do that. It takes patience, doesn't it? Yeah. And you need to be patient when studying the Word of God. The Word of God is like trying to eat an elephant. Can you eat an elephant? Yes, you can. One, one bite at a time. You could eat an elephant, okay? And so we're trying to devour an elephant here, but we're going to do it one little bite at a time, okay? So this morning, we're not going to bite off too much, but the bite you're going to take is going to be uh, a challenge to chew this morning, okay? For some of you, and for some of you, it may not be. Uh, but I have a lot of information I'm going to share with you this morning that most of the professing church today uh, have no understanding of because they really miss out on the Israelogy of the Bible or understanding the Jewishness of our faith. Uh, although the New Testament was written in Koine Greek because Greek is such an expressive language, it has to be understood from a Jewish mindset. A Jewish mindset. You understand? And there's so much that is lacking in the church today because they don't seek that understanding because there is a passive and aggressive anti-Semitism, unfortunately, that exists within the church, uh, I think like never before, and it, and it seems to be swelling and growing. Why? Because we have an enemy. You know, there's an unholy trinity that's working against us, that's axis of evil, the flesh, the world, and who? The devil, the devil, Satan, Satan. Right? And we know that uh, Satan's attack is against the Jew, of course. It's been historic. No people group on the face of the earth have been more persecuted, sought after, murdered than has been the Jews. And not only the Jews, now the body of Christ. Please note that I didn't say Christian dumb. I said body of Christ. And there's a significant reason for that. The body of Christ is truly the one who possesses the Holy Spirit has experienced that born-again experience that can only happen, that new birth through the person of the Holy Spirit. And, we, and you need to have an understanding to make those distinctions because what is so lacking in our world today, and particularly the church in the West, is what we call discernment. There's no discernment. Why? Because there's no real understanding of the Word of God. There's a lot of emotion. Whee! A lot of sparklers out there. You know, you know what sparklers, right? You light it, and it gives off a lot of light and sparkle for a little while, and then fizzles out, doesn't it? Yeah. No, but we're to be lights that shine with eternal light forever. Amen? As he, the light of the world, lights our life. You alone will be the light of the world. You alone will be the salt of the earth, he said. And so that's what we desire to be. Now, the way in which we can accomplish that more and more throughout our life is as we grow in our understanding of God's word, not just for the sake of knowledge. Knowledge for knowledge's sake will make you a Pharisee. You'll become judgmental. Knowledge for the sake of swelling our heart, leading us into a greater love of God. It is the Word of God that leads us to an understanding of the God of the Word. And as we understand the Word of God and all it expresses with regard to the God of the Word, we can ha cannot help but fall in love with Him more and more. 
And love is not emotion. Love is devotion. Devotion. Love is devotion, not emotion. Please understand that. But most of our world doesn't understand that. They have a very sentimental, emotional view and understanding of God, but not a biblical, theological, doctrinal understanding. And that's why there's such a lack of discernment today. It amazes me. It really does. But nonetheless, my desire as your pastor, as your teacher, is to take you as far as you'll allow me into the Word of God so that your understanding grows. Not so that you get a fat head, but so I can swell your heart. Amen? Amen. So with that in mind, we're going to go through the teaching this morning, and I pray that it does touch your hearts. And, and if you'll allow me, I want to pray one more time, okay? Father, there is so much I want to share this morning. There's so much you have given me, you've planted within my mind and my heart. And I know, Lord, I'm only going to give out a portion. But, Lord, I ask that you determine what that portion would be, Lord. As we stroll through this portion of your word, the meadow of truth, let us glean what you have for us, Lord. You have something for each and every one of us. I know you do. And so, Lord, help us to clear our minds now, settle our hearts, remove all of the distractions, Lord, that we have come in here with this morning. There are so many cares that we can carry because of living in this world, Lord. I'll never, ever, ever forget being with Cheryl. Uh, second to the last time I saw Cheryl. And she said, you know, Pastor Rick, you know what's so wonderful about knowing I have terminal cancer? There's nothing for me to worry about anymore. <laughs> oh, Lord. That would surely be heaven. That is going to be heaven, Lord. We'll not have a worry or a concern or an anxious thought ever, 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 ever again. How glorious. But right now, Lord, would you give us that peace that only you can give, that peace of mind, that subtleness of heart, that quietness of spirit, Lord, so that we're able to receive what you have for us from your word? We ask it, Lord, in your holy and precious name. And everyone agreed, said, Amen. Amen. Now everybody take a deep breath. Let it out. One more. Because, you know, when you get tense, you breathe short breaths, you know, and that's not good for you. When you breathe deep breaths, you get that oxygen into your system, you get that oxygen into your brain, and you can receive better, you know. That's a little trick. You know, whenever you're anxious or you feel stressful or you're getting a little nervous, just breathe deeply several times and be amazed how therapeutic that is, how that'll settle your mind, quiet you. Hmm? You ready? Okay, let's turn to the book of Acts, chapter 1. The former account, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. Now, we know that Luke is the author. This is a transitional book. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, and where Luke ends, Acts begins, Luke ends with, and to be continued. Yes, good, you paid attention last time. And to be continued until the day in which he was taken up, right? He's going to give us all the information about what Jesus both to do and to teach while he was on earth. Now the book of Acts deals with Jesus did and taught where? Yeah. While he was in heaven. 
seated at the right hand of God the Father, but through the person of his Holy Spirit into our lives now, right? All right, until the day that he was taken up after through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. He told them to go to Jerusalem and wait. Verse 3, to whom he also presented himself alive after suffering many infallible proofs and disputable evidence for the resurrection of Christ and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. That's going to be our subject this morning, the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And we talked about the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, para and epi, right? And we'll talk more about that when we broach chapter 2. But that's not what I desire to teach you this morning. Verse 6, therefore, when they had come together, they asked the Lord, saying, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? What kingdom would they be talking about? That's what I want to discuss this morning. Over 30 times in Matthew's gospel, Matthew says the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven. Luke's gospel, Mark's gospel, don't refer to it as the kingdom of heaven. They, over and over again, and in the same parallel passages, will say the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. Why the difference, and what is the difference? I'm sorry, I heard something. That's exactly right, Andrew. Because Matthew was writing to the Jew, and he understood the Jewish sensibilities, and he, so he didn't want to use God's name because they would never use God's name for fear they would mispronounce it or use it in some inappropriate way. Even when they would refer to God, how would they refer to God? Hashem. You know Hashem. What does Hashem mean? The name. The name. And so Matthew would never say the kingdom of God. But Luke, however, Gentile writing to Gentiles, Mark as well, describing the servant of God, they would say the kingdom of God. But the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, they are synonymous. They're one and the same. Do you understand that? Hmm? They mean essentially the same thing. And I'm warning, I have notes this morning. I never have notes, but I have notes. And I told the nursery workers, if I go along, just bring the babies in with you. Now, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven simply understood or defined is God's rule. It's where God rules, right? And God rules eternally, spiritually. He rules temporally and materially. Both are true. His rule is an eternal rule, right? And timeless, and it's spiritual. It's in the heavenlies. It's everywhere. But his rule is also temporal, it has a limited period of time, and it's material, it's earthly. Both are true at the same time. There seems to be a contradiction, but there really is no contradiction. But when we talk about the rule of God, how many of you are familiar with Dallas Theological Seminary? Dwight Pentecost, yeah, he had a wonderful dispensationalist, had a wonderful grasp upon eschatology and end times. He would say that you, in order to understand the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, you need to understand the authority and the rule of heaven. There's the right to rule, the realm of rule, and the reality of his rule. Go with me to First Chronicles for a moment. Keep your tab there. and Well, you don't need to stay in Acts. Go to First Chronicles chapter 29.
First Chronicles, chapter 29. We're talking about the kingdom of God. Chapter 29 of First Chronicles. You hear me okay? Yeah. Okay. We're talking about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, God's rule, one and the same, they're synonymous. The only reason why Matthew will not use the kingdom of God is because he won't use God's name inappropriately, writing to the Jews. So don't let any t anyone tell you that there's a distinction or a difference between the two. There isn't. There are some people who will teach that erroneously. But when you look at the passages throughout the synoptics, you'll see that it's the same context that he's talking about. So it's one and the same. But here in 2 Chronicles, we want to look at Dwight Pentecost says that really understanding where God's rule is or the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, you need to understand who has a right to rule, the realm of rule, and the reality of rule. And you see it all here in David's prayer of thanksgiving here in 1 Chronicles. Therefore, um, chapter 29, verse 10. You there? I meant First Chronicles. Did I say Second Chronicles? Why should I know what I'm talking about? You'll tell me. Okay, good. Where do I want to be? First Chronicles, chapter 29, verse 10. I love you guys, you know. God has used the foolish things of the world, right? The base things of the world. Yeah, verse 10. Therefore David blessed the Lord before all the congregation. And David said, Blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. For yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory, the victory and the majesty. Here we see God's right to rule, his sovereign authority over all things of all time. Verse 11b, for all that is in the heaven and his earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. The realm of God's kingdom, the rule is everywhere, isn't it? Hmm? Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you reign over all. In your hand is power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. So we see here what uh, Dwight Pentecost was talking about, that God alone has the right to rule, he has the realm of rule, is everywhere, universally. The reality of rule, that he's ruling even now, and he will rule forever. Go to Daniel chapter 4. The prophet Daniel chapter 4. Who with me there? You know something of the book of Daniel. You know that the king Nebuchadnezzar, uh, had be I believe he had become a believer in the Lord. He had a period of insanity that God drove him out into the wilderness to act like a beast. The dew of the earth would cover his hair. His nails would grow like an animal's claws. and He would eat grass like an ox. But God restored his mind. In verse 34, he's praising the God of heaven. But we see here again a description of the right of God to rule, the realm of God in which God rules, and the reality that he's ruling even now. We have a little expression that we use. Some of you carry that bracelet. God's sovereignty? My sanity in these crazy, crazy times. Why? Because God is in complete and total control, isn't he? 
There's nothing outside of God's control. But here, Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges in verse 34 of chapter 4, at the end of time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven, reigning on heaven and earth, reigning over all. And among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? So we see here what we're talking about in the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, where God rules. God rules. He has the right to rule. The realm realm is over everything. He rules for all time. And he's ruling right now. Although sometimes it seems like he's not in control. Sometimes it seems like he's not in the affairs of man, doesn't it? No, but he is. But what we want to talk about is uh, anybody familiar with Friends of Israel? Ministry, Friends of Israel Ministry? Okay. There's a theologian who passed away, Dr. Renald Showers. He was a very popular uh, theologian, particularly understanding the Jewishness of the scriptures. Uh, He was uh, very active for some 30 years in Friends of Israel Ministry. And he said, there's some seeming contradictions when we talk about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. But when you really understand God's program with regard to his kingdom, then those contradictions go away. And that's true of any contradiction that you might read in the Bible. You might find a seeming contradiction, but the Bible is not contradictory, is it? No, no, no. There's a harmony throughout all of the scriptures, all 66 books, over 1,400 years, 40 different authors, but, but it's one message. There's no contradiction. But he would say here there's a distinction of time. That's the when. Is the kingdom of God present or is it future? There's a distinction or contradiction of scope. Where? Is it universal or is it just earthly? He says there's a distinction of administration. Who? Is it God or human representatives of God that rule? And so those are the things he was looking at. And there are some debate about that. I see some covenant theologians uh, very confused about what is meant by this term, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. They seem to think that it it just describes one particular kingdom, but that's not true. Dispensationalists have always saw different aspects to the kingdom. And I am so thankful and grateful. Who who are the primary writers of the Bible? 65 or 60, excuse me, 64 of the 66 books? Jews, Jews. When we look at any particular area of study, discipline, science, what people group with ethnicity have made the greatest contribution to that particular study? Jews. Half of 1%, half of 1% of the population of the world, yet over 30% of the Nobel Prize winners in so many fields of study. You, you can't find a field of study, the arts, science, whatever it might be, that there hasn't been a, a number of significant Jewish personalities, men and women, who have made tremendous contributions into that study. Why? Why? Through you, Abraham, I will bless them, bless the world. And we're blessed through the intelligence of the Jewish people, aren't we? And the Bible that we love, that brings us into an understanding of our worship of the God of the Bible, was written by Jews. And so much of it can be understood. The principal Jew that helped us understand most of what Jesus both did and said was who? Rabbi Saul, Paul, right? Paul, the Jew. Well, I, um, I have to tell you, from my 
42 years now, almost 43, of walking with the Lord, I am so thankful for the number of teachers that I have had who have been Messianic Jews. They have opened up my understanding to the scriptures more, more than any of the number of Gentile teachers I've listened to be, because God has given them a special grace, a special understanding because of their ethnicity, their culture, their background, the context that they come from. Is that not true? Do you know what I'm talking about? I hope you do. And, and so as we go through this study this morning, you're going to see it's, it's those wonderful Jewish personalities, those Messianic Jews who, who have had the light go on in their minds, just like the Apostle Paul and sharing all that it meant what Jesus did and taught. We would be so remiss if we didn't have the writings of Paul to explain to us what Jesus did and taught. Peter said, of hard things to understand. You know, Paul, his mind? Well, it's, it's true with so much of an understanding of end times, the kingdom of God, eschatology, the mission of the Messiah, the progression of the kingdom? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. And, and this may be new for a lot of you, but I, I, it, it, just like Christmas morning. What did I teach on Christmas morning? Migdalator. Do you know, over 20 years ago, I started teaching that. And 20 years ago, no one, no one had ever heard or knew what the Migdalator was. Now, I'm so thankful. There's many in the church know and understand what the Migdalator represents. That's fascinating, isn't it? Just as God had revealed to Daniel when he gave Daniel the ability to prophesy the first and second coming of Christ right to the very day, the angel told Daniel, don't worry about any of this. I know you, I know you have a divine headache from everything I just showed you, but you're not to understand it. It's not meant for you. It's meant for the time of the end when many will grow to and fro and knowledge shall increase exponentially and then, and then the secrets of these things will be revealed, Daniel. Do you know we're in that day? It's wonderful to be in that day, isn't it? Now, for, for almost 2,000 years of the church, our Christmas story had been so wrong, so unbiblical, not accurate at all, haven't they? But, but now, now there's a more accurate understanding of what's taking place, and now you have a choice. You're going to follow tradition, your emotions, your heart, what you want it to be, or what the reality is, you know. And, and I'm so thankful when God brings me to that place. Am I going to follow my preconceived notions, bias? Or am I going to follow the truth? And in every case, the best thing for us to do is to let go of that which isn't true and embrace that which is. Right? Yeah. Amen. So that's what I'm saying. Okay. So uh, Showers thought that there was a... There, he, he saw these seeming contradictions, and many in the covenant realm believe that these are obvious contradictions, but they are not. He said, when you understand the program of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, then you'll understand they are not contradictions. Is it present or is it future? Yes, it's both. Is it universal or is it earthly? Yes, it's both. Is it God ruling, administering, or is he doing it through his human representatives? Yes, it's both. When you understand the kingdom of God program. And I want to present to you that, that there's five ways in which you understand the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. First of all, the kingdom of God is an eternal, universal kingdom. It's God's realm over and rule over the seen and the unseen realm. Is that not true? It's eternal because it's timeless. It's universal because he rules over everything and everywhere, doesn't he? Yes, heaven and earth. 
He rules. That's the universal kingdom of God. And we see that right from the very beginning. In the beginning of creation, God ruled before anything was. And he's ruling even now after everything has been brought into existence. There's the spiritual aspect of the kingdom of God. That's the second aspect that we want to look at. Turn with me to John's Gospel, chapter 3. The spiritual kingdom was described for us both in the Old Testament and the New. And we'll see that, that four of the five aspects of the kingdom that I'm going to explain to you are all revealed in the Old Testament except for one. And that's the one we want to pay most attention to right now. But right uh, for the sake of our conversation, we're looking at the spiritual kingdom. And the spiritual kingdom is comprised of everyone who's entered in through that spiritual experience of the new birth by the Holy Spirit. Ruach Hogesh in the Old Testament, Numehagiosune in the New. How would Old Testament saints experience a new birth? That's exactly right. All, the, all that was necessary was to believe, to have faith in the promises that God has made with regard to the salvation that would come in the person of the Messiah. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned or accounted to him as righteousness. That's a legal term, forensic term. He said, I declare you righteous, Abraham. Why? Because you believe me. You believe me. Now, we know that in the New Testament now, all of those promises that were made were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah. So everyone who accepts what Jesus has done, what God had promised in the Old Testament, accomplished in the New Testament by Christ, everyone who will accept that receives the Holy Spirit into their life, into their heart, and they are part of that spiritual kingdom. That would include, I would hope, every one of you in this sanctuary this morning most everyone in my hearing over the internet. That would include all of the body of Christ. It does not include all of Christendom. Christendom. Please understand that. There's another kingdom best described by that one word, Christendom. Okay. But here in John 3, uh, that's, this is that kingdom that Jesus is talking to Pharisee about. John 3, verse 1, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What? What are you talking about? <laughs> No, it has nothing to do with the statement that Nicodemus made, right? But what does it reveal? What was in Nicodemus' heart? Yeah. Nicodemus was the third wealthiest man in all of Jerusalem. Nicodemus was a rabbon, the teacher of teachers. He was the most revered Pharisee in all of Israel. If you wanted to know anything about the word of God, the spiritual world, how God worked, you would go to Nicodemus. But Nicodemus himself knew he fell short. I don't measure up. I've been trying to obey all of the law, and I can't. Who can obey the law? Who can keep the law? There is no righteousness that one could achieve by their own performance, is there? No. Don't listen. Don't ever, ever, ever get on that, 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 that hamster wheel of trying to perform for God, because you can't. It's not a perfection of performance. What is it? It's a perfection of relationship where we give our heart to God, and God begins to change our life, and it's progressive. He never stops changing us, does he? No, no. And so this is the kingdom that Jesus is talking about when he says, Lord, unless you're born again, you'll not see the kingdom of God, the spiritual kingdom. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter his second time into his mother's womb and be born? Ridiculous. 
No, Jesus is talking about a spiritual transformation that would take place. Born of the water, born of the spirit. Look what he says. Assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. No, he's making it very clear. And he said, don't make more of this than what it is. He said, when you're born of the flesh, what happens? Your mother goes into labor, her water breaks, and wee, water slide. Right? You come forth. Right? Yeah. That's what, that's what, listen, that's what it means to be born of the water. Born of the flesh. Right? But to be born of the spirit, now that's a totally different matter. Now you must be born of the, of the water in order to have a spiritual birth. Right? You got to have a physical birth, not have a spiritual birth. But that spiritual birth is where you're born of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Where the Holy Spirit gives you that baptismo. Where all, all of a sudden you have a new birth where the eyes of your understanding are open. Your mind, you believe, your heart, you surrender and yield. And the Lord becomes the Lord of your life. And you enter into the spiritual kingdom. Oh, I hope in my prayer every single one of you have entered into that spiritual kingdom. The universal kingdom, he reigns. It's eternal, universal. It's timeless. He reigns throughout all time, and he reigns everywhere. But the spiritual, now the spiritual kingdom, most important to you and me, is that he would reign in your heart. The question is, does he? Do you give every indication that you are surrendered to the king of the kingdom? Every indication that, that any of those fleshly appetites that are aroused in your life, that, that, that try to raise their ugly head through the power of the Holy Spirit, you subdue them? Resist the devil, resist the flesh, resist the world, resist temptation, and it'll flee from you. But are you yielded to, to the king of the kingdom? That's the spiritual kingdom. There's, there's another kingdom. You know, we talk about the universal kingdom, and we talk about the spiritual kingdom. The spiritual kingdom was comprised of saints, both Old Testament and New Testament, believing the promise and accepting the reality of the promise that has come. But then there's a the theocratic kingdom. The theocratic. Now, listen, these are different aspects of the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven. When you understand these different aspects, you'll understand there's, there's no contradictions. Everything just harmonizes. And, and, and this is the progression. This is God's program for the kingdom, Okay. So now we're going to talk about the theocratic kingdom. The theocratic kingdom, or the theocracy. There was only one theocracy, no, uh, there will never be any more than one theocracy that ever existed on the face of the earth. And where was that? Israel. Israel was a theocracy. It's not today, but it was. Okay? There was only one theocratic kingdom, only one theocracy, and, and it'll never exist again because we're going we're gonna to see. We're going to go into the new kingdom. But anyway, this theocracy of Israel, this theocratic kingdom, mediatorial, where there were mediators at first. Who were some of the mediators of this theocratic kingdom of Israel? Who was the first? Moses. Moses. Of course, Moses. After Moses, Joshua, right? After Joshua, the judges, right? All of the judges. After the last judge, who was the last judge? Samuel. Samuel. What was the three offices that Samuel held, much like Christ? He was a type of Christ. Only Samuel. Only Samuel was this person, type of Christ. Who? What were those three offices? Prophet. Priest, prophet, and judge. He was a priest, he was a prophet, and he was a judge. Much like Jesus, priest, prophet, and king, right? But Samuel was the last judge and the first prophet. Thank you. 
Samuel was the last judge, the first prophet, and that was the end of the meteorial kingdom. Now we have the monarchy. The, the monarchy, first one, first king to be anointed by Samuel was who? Saul. And then who? And then who? And then who? You can't go. Yeah, there's a lot of them, right? And then there was a divided kingdom, right? After, after Solomon, there was a divided kingdom. There was the kingdom of the north, which was Israel, the capital Samaria, the kingdom of the south, Judea, capital Jerusalem. And there were all these kings in both kingdoms, the north kingdom, the south kingdom. Oh, my goodness. But how do you remember? How many good kings were in the north kingdom? Zero. Just remember that. In the northern kingdom of Israel, zero. Southern kingdom of Judah, Jerusalem, how many good kings? How many good kings? Eight. Very good. How many reformers? Very good, very good. So that's what we see. All right. So that was the monarchy. Went from a mediatorial kingdom where it was mediated by God's representatives, Moses, Joshua, uh, and, and etc. the judges, finally with Samuel. And then it became a monarchy, still a theocracy, God ruling over and through his kings, right? But then the monarchy ended. Who was the last king? We're going to read about him again uh, this Wednesday as we go through these parables in Ezekiel 15, 16, 17. What was the parable in 15? The vine. What was the parable in 16? The adulterous wife. Adulterous wife. 17? Mm, the two eagles. Judgment on Zedekiah. Zedekiah was the last king of the monarchy. What happened to Zedekiah and Jerusalem at that time? Who did that? Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians. Now, the end of the monarchy ended the theocracy of Israel, ended the theocratic kingdom. You understand that? Okay? You had Babylon came in, 586 B.C., and destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, the people were dispersed, and that began a period of time which we call... Thank you, Ed, the times of the Gentiles. Yeah. You want to come up here and teach us? You could. I know you could. <laughs> At the end of the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem in 586, it began what we call the time of the Gentiles. The time of the Gentiles. I have some notes here. Let me see. Um, it began with Daniel chapter 2. He had a, interpreted a dream, a king's dream. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. What was the dream? All of the Gentile ruling kingdoms that would come. The times of the Gentiles. The first kingdom was Babylon. The second kingdom was Medo-Persian. The third kingdom was the Greeks. The Greeks are coming. The fourth kingdom was Rome. And the last kingdom, the last kingdom in the period we call the times of the Gentiles is which? The revived Roman Empire. Now, it's also Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream gives us the history, the full history of the times of the Gentiles. Then Daniel himself had a vision, remember? Chapter 7, he had a vision. And in his vision, he sees all of these Gentile governing empires that are going to come forth. But what is interesting, what he mentions, is something will take place after these theocratic, or after the uh, time of the Gentiles. We had the theocratic kingdom ending with the time of the Gentiles. Look at chapter 2 of Daniel. What he says will take place after these Gentile empires or kingdoms rule. 
and specifically ruling in the area of Palestine. That's what they're concerned about. All of human history, from God's perspective, is the way in which God is dealing with whom? Israel. God views all of human history in the way in which he's dealing with his people, the Jews, Israel. Now, is it that he loves Israel alone? No, not at all. He loves the whole world. But he's just chosen the Jews to use them to represent himself to the rest of the world. But here in chapter 2, as Daniel gives the interpretation of this dream, at the very end when he sees this last world-governing empire, which we're seeing form today, right now, he says, <clears throat> uh, pick it up in verse 40. And, and most of you are familiar with the book of Daniel and these, the vision and the dream. All right, verse 40. The fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, and as much as iron breaks in pieces and scatters all things. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all others. Whereas you saw the feet and toes of partly clay, partly iron, the kingdom shall be divided, yet the strength of the iron shall be in it. Just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay, and as the toes of the feet were partly iron, partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong, partly fragile. It won't be like the Roman Empire of old. And, and all of the strength and integrity it had because it was so united. No, no, no. But this is going to be a, a, a confederation of nations comprising the old Roman Empire. Partly iron, partly clay, partly strong, partly weak. Verse 43, and as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. But in the days of these kings... In the times of the Gentiles, at the very end, when the last Gentile power is ruling over, more specifically, the land of Palestine, the land of Israel, in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will do what? Another kingdom. Will set up his kingdom, which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever, forever inasmuch. As you saw, the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold. The great God has made known to you, the king, what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain. The interpretation is sure. Take it to the bank. More sure than the world that you're standing on right now. It's true, right? And it's going to be happening soon. Now, he's giving every indication that in this last world-governing empire by the Gentiles over Israel, the times of the Gentiles will be over. And that somebody sets up a kingdom. Who sets up this kingdom? Hmm. Do you, you know there's a bad doctrine that's going around about eschatology? Uh, kingdom now, dominion theology, are you familiar with any of that? Yeah. And, and the interpretation of that very simply is that they believe erroneously that the church, Christendom, is going to rise up and take control of all the power centers of the world, business, government, religion. And we're going to bring in the kingdom of heaven. And when we control the globe and the entire globe is now Christianized, then Jesus Christ will return. Have you ever heard that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. One of the more uh, popular, uh, uh, that had its beginning with a guy by the name of Watchman Nee. Anybody know, ever read Watchman Nee? Chinese Christian. He's a little off in his eschatology, but that's what he believed. And there are many who believe that today, but that's just not true because Daniel makes it very clear. Who establishes this kingdom? And what's happening just before he establishes this kingdom? Who's in control? The beast. The Antichrist. Yeah. 
Look at chapter 7 now. Daniel gives the same, same, it's his vision now rather than the king's dream, but he gives the same interpretation, and the same thing happens at the end, that God brings about his kingdom. Look at Daniel chapter 7. He, he sees these beasts, these four beasts that rise up out of the sea, right? <clears throat> what does the sea always represent? The world. the world. Make no mistake about that, you know? When you use the principle of hermeneutics, whenever something is mentioned for the first time in the Bible in a figurative sense, it'll maintain that figurative meaning throughout the scriptures. So the sea, whenever you read the sea, Old Testament, New Testament, the sea will always represent what? The, world. the sea will always represent what? The world. You got it? Okay, because that's going to be meaningful in a little while. The sea means the world, and that's what he's talking about. So you've got these four world-governing empires that are rising up from the world. And he says here, uh, verse 3, chapter 7, for four great beasts come up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on its two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. Who was that? It was Babylon. Babylon. There's a consistent interpretation from scholars all over the world throughout all of the history of the church that this is talking about the Babylonian Empire. The next, and suddenly another beast, a second, like a bear, it raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and they, and they thus said to it, Arise and devour much flesh. Who was that? Medo-Persian. The Medo-Persian Empire came after the Babylonians. And the, the ancient Persians are the present-day Iranians, Iranians, make no mistake about that either. That's a demon. Verse 6, after this I looked and there was another like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads. The dominion was given to it. Which one was that? The Grecian Empire. The Grecian Empire. It's very interesting. And God's predicting this. And, and we can see this over and over and over again. But here I'm just giving you an example. Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, the times of the Gentiles. Times of the Gentiles began when the theocracy of Israel ended. The universal kingdom still exists, right? Eternal, universal, universal, timeless, everywhere. God reigns. God's sovereignty, my sanity, right? The spiritual kingdom still exists, right? It it's consists of those who really have experienced a new birth through the Holy Spirit, right? But the theocratic kingdom, it had a beginning, had its end. Its end was at the end of the monarchical period, the period of the monarchs. It ended then, and then began the times of the Gentiles. That's what we're talking about now. That's what, listen, that's the period we're in right now, times of the Gentiles, right? Chapter 7, he goes on to say, the Grecian Empire was the leopard. Verse 7, after this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful, terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the other beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Now what kingdom is this? The Roman Empire. Could anyone destroy the Roman Empire? How was the Roman Empire destroyed? Corrupted from within. Corrupted from within. Could anyone conceivably think of kicking our butt, the United States of America? We're the strongest military power in the world. We were the strongest economic. We're, today, we're still the strongest economic power in the world. Hmm. But it's going to happen, isn't it? Just as Rome is no more because it was corrupted from within, what's happening to America? Anybody ever see the movie Avalon? 
No. Avalon is about an immigrant family, Jews, who came to this country. Um, it was at a time when America was in her infancy. She was beautiful. She offered such opportunity and such blessing. I watched that movie last night again and cried at the end. You have no idea, beloved, how much we have lost of who we are. We've lost our soul. The soul of America is gone. You, you have no idea. I am so thankful for the kingdom that is coming. But like Rome, we've destroyed ourselves from within. That corruption, that leaven that we've allowed to overtake us. But continuing on in Daniel, chapter 7. After this, I saw in the night visions that fourth beast, terrible, dreadful, exceedingly strong, huge iron teeth. And in verse 8, he says, I was considering the horns on that beast, the ten horns, and he said, there was another horn, a little horn, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man in a mouth, speaking pompous words. Who's this? Has he come yet? No. no. Now, my particular... Uh, belief is that he's alive right now. I don't think he knows who he is, but, but the man is alive right now. We are in the period of the end, quickly approaching the end. Thank God, right? But, but this man will be a, uh, a false Christ. The Antichrist is not against Christ. He claims to be the Christ, the false Christ, the God of all gods, the one to be worshipped. He will be possessed of the devil. As, as Jesus Christ was God incarnate, this man is the devil incarnate in flesh. He, and, and the devil doesn't have an original thought. He, he copies or counterfeits everything God does, doesn't he? There's a holy trinity and there's an unholy trinity. The holy trinity is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The unholy trinity, Satan, the Antichrist, the false prophet. There was an actual crucifixion and murder of the Messiah who then rose from the dead, truly resurrected, Irrefutable evidence, historical evidence for the resurrection of Christ. But this man, the Antichrist, will perform a false resurrection. Won't he? He'll receive a mortal head wound where everyone will perceive he's dead. And he comes back from, no, he didn't come back from the dead. Satan possesses his body. Hmm, crazy, crazy. But during that time, look what it says. And I watched, verse 9, till thrones were put in place and the Ancient of Days was seated. Who's that? Who's that? Ancient of Days. God Almighty. And his garment was as white as snow. The hair of his head was pure wool. His throne was fiery flame, its wheels burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousands, thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. Innumerable amount of witnesses, angels singing, praising him. The court was seated. The books were opened and I watched. Then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking, I watched till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame, the end of the times of the Gentiles. For the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man. Who's this? Jesus. Jesus. Jesus, the second coming. 
coming with the clouds of heaven, and he came to the Ancient of Days, to God the Father, and brought him near before him. And then to him, to Jesus, was given the glory and the kingdom, and all peoples, nations, language served him. His dominion was an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom, the one which should not be destroyed. Wow. So we go from the theocratic kingdom now to the times of the Gentiles, but we're going to go from the times of the Gentiles to the millennial kingdom of Christ. But before we do, there's a period of time in between the first and second coming, which we call the mystery kingdom. Now, the four previous kingdoms, the universal kingdom, the spiritual kingdom, the theocratic, theocratic kingdom, or the messianic and the millennial kingdom, all had an understanding of these things, all prophesied in the Old Testament. You know that, right? But the one kingdom that was not prophesied and not understood in the Old Testament was the mystery kingdom. And we call it the mystery kingdom because it was a mysterion. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 3 for a moment. When we read the word mysterion in the New Testament, mystery, what does it mean? Whenever you read the word mystery in the New Testament, mysterion, it's a truth God is revealing to the spiritual kingdom, to those who are, uh, to the church. A truth he is revealing to the church, but it's concealed from the world. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have eyes, but they cannot see. So anytime you read mystery, it's a truth God wants to reveal to you and I, but it's still hidden from the unbelieving world. And so Paul writes of this mystery, both here in Ephesians and Colossians, that the mystery kingdom is speaking of. So look with me at chapter 3 of Ephesians, and uh, verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, the mysterion, this, this, this truth that's going to be revealed now, as I wrote before in few words, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge and the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men as it has been now revealed by the Spirit to the holy apostles and prophets. What is this mystery that Paul is talking about that was concealed in the Old Testament that's now being revealed in the New Testament that all of the apostles said, wow, of course! Gentiles and Jews becoming one new man. The church comprised of both Jew and Gentile that the Gentiles would be grafted in. Unheard of. Crazy. Preposterous. What does it say in verse 6? That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body, partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, the Messiah. Christ is simply the Messiah. Of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power through the Holy Spirit to me who am least of the the least of all of the saints, was grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ to make known, to make all people see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ. And what is that mystery? Christ in you, the hope of glory, he was saying in Colossians. 
to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in heavenly places, demons, Satan himself, according to the eternal purpose which God, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Therefore, I ask that you not lose heart at my tribulation for you, which is for your glory. Now, basically, what Paul is saying, and he shares the same truth in Colossians, actually, all the New Testament is expressing for us that God's purpose was that he was not willing that any should perish. For God so loved Israel, the Jew? No, God so loved the world that he sent Jesus. And so this mystery kingdom is the fact that God was accomplishing this spiritual kingdom who would be comprised of both Jews and Gentiles, goyem, barbar, unheard of, right? Now, where we get the term mystery kingdom and where it's described for us more than any place else is Matthew 13. Turn with me there. Matthew 13. And there's one word that describes this mystery kingdom because this mystery kingdom is comprised of both believers and make-believers. And what's the word? Christendom. Not the body of Christ, Christendom. Christendom is the one word that describes this kingdom because in this kingdom there are true believers, there's false believers. In this kingdom there's a true doctrine and there's false doctrine. In this kingdom, you need to understand that Satan has work at work and God is at work. You need to understand that every time we gather together on Sunday, the Holy Spirit's with us, isn't he? He's here. He's among us. Who else is here? Satan trying to do his bidding. Make no mistake about that. Matthew 13, the mystery of the kingdom, has been revealed by Jesus. And, and you need to, again, you need to interpret this. I've listened to several, several teachers and pastors who I really admire and appreciate, but none of them seem to grasp what really needs to be understood here in this chapter. And I'm just so thankful that God has given me the opportunity to be introduced to such messianic teachers like uh, Zola Levitt and, and uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum. And so many others who, who have opened up our understanding to what's really being shared in God's word from that Jewish mindset. And just as the uh, monarch ended and it became the times of the Gentiles, now we're in another dispensation, and we're still in the times of the Gentiles. That won't end until the second coming of Christ when, when he establishes his millennial reign in the millennial kingdom, the messianic kingdom. But in the times of the Gentiles, we're approaching a new period, a new age, and we're in it now, which we call in dispensational theology, the, the church age. When did the church age begin? It hasn't. We haven't been in chapter 2 yet. No, it's Pente Pentecost, chapter 2. Chapter 2, the church age begins. When does the church age end? The rapture of the church. The rapture of the church. It's ending very soon. 2023, Jesus is coming for you and for... You know that, don't you? I hope. I hope and pray. But, but here, here the mystery kingdom deals with the church age or Christendom. And Jesus reveals the truth of this age at, in these uh, parables. What is a parable? It's an, listen to me, a parable, very simply, parables are just earthly stories with heavenly or spiritual meanings. 
earthly stories with heavenly or spiritual meanings. So that's what these are. These are earthly stories to help the apostles understand, but their meaning is much more spiritual, heavenly. It has to do with the mystery kingdom or the church age, which they didn't understand. Even at this point, they didn't understand that Jesus was grafting in the, the Gentile to become co-heirs with Christ. And in chapter 13, we have the first parable there. Uh, let's pick it up in verse 18, 18 to 23. You know, it's the parable of the sowers. Uh, sowers. I know you're familiar with it. But in verse 18, it says, Now therefore, hear the parable of the sower. If anyone hears the word of God and does not understand it, then the wicked one, who's the wicked one? Satan. 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 Then the wicked one come and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who received the seed by the wayside. But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a little while. Well, when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. First one is Satan. This one is the flesh. The flesh causes him to stumble. Why? Because he's falling on some trouble, some tribulation, and goes back to his old comforts. Do be careful, beloved. Remain steadfast. No matter what. Listen, I, I believe we're going to have a rocky road this year. 2023 is going to be a difficult year. And we may have to experience some difficult things, but that doesn't mean God has abandoned you, and don't, don't abandon God. In this world, you will have. But be of good cheer. Jesus said, I've overcome the world. Hang in there. Don't give up. Oh, how many people give up when hard times hit, and they go back to the comforts of their flesh, whatever it might be. When the men study yesterday, who were we talking about? Gave up such blessing. For a bowl of lentils? I like lentils, don't get me wrong, you know. <laughs> lentils and brown rice, perfect protein. But he allowed this fleshly appetite to steal from him the blessings of God. Rather be satisfied with a bowl of lentils and forsake his birthright. How many people do that today? What, what, listen, what appetite did you allow to be? I'm not talking to you. Maybe somebody over the internet. Maybe somebody else. Maybe you just need the information to share with somebody you know. You need to be very, 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 very careful, mindful of what appetites you excite in your life, what appetites you give yourself over to. When trouble hits, when you're uncomfortable, when you want to be comforted, you'll go to those appetites. People go to drugs. They'll go to alcohol. They'll go to inappropriate relationships. You, you, know, you know what I'm talking about. That's what he's talking about here. Be listen, be very careful. Pray and ask God to give you an appetite for only him, only righteousness, only the good, a love of the good. You see, He'll keep you. We love his saving grace, but we love his keeping grace even more, don't we? No, but they gave up. Verse 22, now he who received the seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world. And the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word and he becomes unfruitful. See, the devil, the flesh, the world, it's all working against us. But greater is he that is, if you're born again, if you experience a new birth, you have nothing to fear. 
Verse 23, but he who received the word on the good ground as he who hears the word understands it and indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. So what he's saying here is that the mystery kingdom or in the church age, you see, there's going to be those sowing seed. There'll be those who sow good seed, those who sow bad seed, but, but some of the seed will be stolen away. Why? Because of the consort of evil, the devil, the flesh in the world will steal away what God is trying to do in your life. Now, we have a choice. We, we could submit to the world or submit to God. Whose kingdom are you allowing to rule over you? Satan's? God's. You're either of the seed of the woman or you're of the seed of the serpent. There's only two possibilities. And that every human being you'll ever meet of one of two seeds. The seed of the woman, which is Christ. Or the seed of the serpent, which is the devil. Is that true? Yeah, of course it is. Of course it is. So the mystery kingdom of the church age is a kingdom in which the gospel will be sown. Some will receive it and some won't. You save anybody? No. no. Your responsibility is simply to represent God and to represent him rightly. Hmm? But it's only God alone who saves. Now, we respond to what God is initiating in our life. As a woman, we respond to a, to a man who woos her, right? And, and husbands, you need to understand that about your wives. You know, God has built them, made them to respond to whatever it is you do, good or bad. Yeah. You hear that, Andrew? Yeah. <laughs> Newlyweds. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it? Young love. Yeah. And so we're responders to what he's done. And we need to respond rightly. But some won't. We see that. But now the next parable he gives in verse 31 is the parable of the mustard seed. Or the, excuse me, in verse 24, the parable of the wheat and the tares. And again, this is the mystery kingdom. This is the church age. And God wants you to understand, have a full understanding of this mystery kingdom that has come about, which was hidden in the Old Testament, revealed in the New. Another parable he brought forth to them, saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men slept, his enemy, who's the enemy? Satan. Satan. Satan came, and he sowed tares among the wheat, and he went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. And so the servants of the owner came, said to the men, Sir, did we not sow good seed in the field? How is it then that it tares? It has tares. He said to them, An enemy has done this. His servant said to him, Do you want me to go and to gather them up? And he said, No, at least while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them. But gather the wheat into my barn. What is he trying to say there? During the church age, what's going to take place? You'll have believers. Now listen to me. This is in Christendom. Christendom will be comprised of both true believers and make believers. You understand that? And unfortunately, I think we have far more many make-believers than we have true believers. The bearded Darnell, which is the species of terror that the enemy was planting, you can't tell the difference as they're growing, whether it's a true stalk of wheat or the bearded Darnell, which has no fruit at all, you can't tell the difference as they're growing and sprouting. The only time you can tell one from the other is during the time of harvest, harvest fruitfulness. 
A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. You, now, have you ever heard anybody tell you you can't judge anybody? We're not to judge. They're just saying, don't, 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 don't try to convict me. I'm happy with my sin. Don't make me uncomfortable. You know? No, no, no. We're supposed to be fruit inspectors. If a person is producing fruit for God, because the salvation has occurred. If there is no fruit for God being produced in a person's life, there is no reason to believe salvation has ever occurred. You need to bring them to the cross. You understand? During the church age, during Christendom's period of existence, there will grow among true believers the wheat, the tares, the bearded darnel. And you can't tell the difference until the harvest. Who really and truly knows the heart? God. And that's when he separates the wheat from the tares, the sheep from the goats. Right? Precisely what's going to happen at the end of the day. Now, that's what he's talking about here, the mystery kingdom. It's a time in which the gospel will be shared and spread throughout the whole world. But during that sharing of the gospel, some will receive it, some won't. The flesh, the world, the enemy will try to steal away the truth of the gospel, and they will for many. But those who receive it will be part of the body of Christ. But within the body of Christ will be Christendom. Many make believers. And you, listen to me, unless you're really spiritually attuned, you won't be able to tell the difference. It amazes me how many gullible believers there are today who are following these Pied Pipers, these hucksters. Anyway, the next parable with regard to this mystery kingdom, the church age, another parable he put forth saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field which indeed is the least of all the seeds. But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Hmm. What's he saying there? During this mystery kingdom, during this church age, what's going to take place? There's going to be a false growth of the church. Oh, it's going to appear to be growing exponentially. Do you know what's happening to see this revival, this evangelistic crusade? Hey, have you heard that music? Wow. And people are excited and things are growing, but it's a monstrosity. It's not a tree. Mustard seed doesn't produce a tree. Mustard seed produces a bush, but this, this bush is such artificial growth. And what's in its branches? Birds. Birds. And what do the birds represent? Evil. Evil. When you use that principle of hermeneutics, not doves. Now, we're not talking about doves, right? Alfred Hitchcock produced a movie called The Doves? No. (laughs) It's called The Birds. Birds. And listen, these birds rest in the branches of this false growth. Listen to me, beloved. Most of what you see is a work of man, not of God. I grew up in, how many of you grew up in Catholicism, Romanism? Look at you, many of you. You ever been to Europe? Visit some of the cathedrals of Europe? During Rome's heyday in Europe? 
Those cathedrals were, were mobbed with people, multiple services every Sunday. Mobs of people going in, mobs of people coming out. I mean, you think, oh, look at the work that God is doing. A thousand years of the Inquisition, where true Christians are being murdered by that same church. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to closely what, what the cathedrals of Europe were in days gone by. And I'm not saying everyone, but it, it's what the megachurch is today. What the cathedrals of Europe were in days gone by. Most of them were true believers. They had religion. They were exactly what we're talking about. True believers among make-believers. Well, that's precisely what we have today. And it's precisely what Jesus predicted. He said, don't you understand? During this time, just before I come, just before the end of the church age, this is what's going to happen. This monstrosity of growth, but it's not growth at all. How did the Pied Piper woo all of the rats into the river? Yes. Music. Do you know how many of this young generation are being wooed by the Pied Piper, by Hasatan, through the mu Some of the music is good. Some of the music will motivate you. Some of the words of the music are their doctrine behind it. What's wrong with the cults? What's wrong with Mormonism? What's wrong with Jehovah's Witness? What's wrong with Catholicism? Do you know? Do you have any understanding? It's the arsenic that's in their doctrine. 90% of what they say may be true and biblical, but that 10% will kill you. You wouldn't eat a steak that's sprinkled with arsenic, would you? No, of course you wouldn't. You know, but it's 90% steak. So too of what's being shared today as being gospel truth, doctrinal, theological truth. It's not. It's not. Another parable he shared with them. Verse 33, another parable he spoke to them, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three meals, measures of meal, until it was all leaven. Now, what is this parable telling us? What's going to happen at the end of the age? What's going to happen during this mystery kingdom? What's going to happen during the church age? Leaven, false doctrine coming in among what is true. A little leaven will leaven the whole lump, right? You know, what you put in that ginger ale to make that stuff work? There's some kind of a yeast or something, right? What is it? It grows. It grows. It grows. Well, you make bread. You put yeast in bread so it will rise, right? What does the, what does the leaven or the yeast do in bread? It corrupts it. It, it expediates, listen, it expediates the rotting process. It expediates the corruption of the bread so it swells, Right? What does a little sin do in your life? Corrupts you. And leaven corrupts by puffing. Oh, boy, pride cometh before? Oh, boy. Yeah. Be very, very, very careful. You know, Paul warns over and over and over again not to lay hands on anyone who's a novice. Why? They get, laid up, pride up, they get puffed up with pride. They start to believe the reviews that they're reading and hearing about themselves. Dangerous. Sin. Leaven. In the body. Now this leaven is false doctrine, isn't it? It's sin. And Jesus went on and explained the parable of the tares. He goes on and talks about the parable of the treasure. Verse 44, 
Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. Now, you need to be very careful to understand what treasure is, both from an Old Testament understanding and a New Testament understanding. Is he talking about pirate's treasure? Aye. <laughs> no. No. Do you know what the treasure is in the text? I'm sorry? The treasured Jews. Jews. Oh, I don't have time to go through it, but write this down, please. Later on, look at Exodus 19, verse 5. Go to Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. Go to Deuteronomy 14, verse 2. Go to Psalm 135, verse 4. And then there are many more references that I could give you where Jesus is likening the Jew. Did you get that? All right, let me do that again. Okay. All right, when you open up the book, go to Exodus 19, verse 5. Go to Deuteronomy, the second law, verse, chapter 7, verse 6. Go to chapter 14, verse 2 of Deuteronomy. Go to Psalm 135, verse 4. And there are others like it. You can take out your concordance and just do a search on the word treasure. And the word treasure in the Old Testament is always referring to, when it's referring to a people group, to the Jews. To the Jews. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. This mystery kingdom at the end of the age will be comprised of who? Jews and Gentiles. And so this first parable of the treasure was referring to the Jews. Has God forsaken Israel? Has God wrote off Israel? This replacement theology that's being embraced by the church today, it's, it's, it's of the devil. The church has not replaced Israel. Don't ever let anybody tell you that. And if anybody teaches that, run. God will not bless that. How arrogant, how ignorant of so much of the Gentile church today. And so much of the contemporary... Uh, here, I'm going to get on my soapbox. I'm going to get upset, aren't I? My blood pressure's starting to rise. You know. how, how much of... <laughs> Do you know how many leaders in the contemporary church are telling their people not to read the Old Testament? And stop reading about eschatology and Israelology. God's done with Israel. Stop reading the Old Testament. Just focus on the Christology of the New Testament. Blasphemous. It's horrible. You really can't have a full understanding of the new without the old. Right? The new is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. I need all of it. All the word of God. Where am I? Treasure. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field which a man found and hid, and for the joy over it goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Yes, God is raising up for himself residents of the mystery kingdom from the Jewish people. He's seeking them out. He's drawing them. And it's, it's wonderful to see how many Jews are coming to faith now in Israel. Anybody ever listen to uh, Israel 7 News? <coughs> Anybody listen to Israel 7 News? There's a 12-minute news clip every single day that you can get on and find out what's going on in 12 minutes. Very concise. Very succinct. Nobody else? Anybody else? Just one person? What's, what's unique about Israel 7 News? They're Messianic Jews. They pray to Jesus Christ on Israeli television. Isn't that amazing? Wow. Who would have ever imagined such a thing? But more, listen, one Israel. You ever go on one Israel? Look at some of the testimonies of all the Jews coming to faith. Wow. It's happening in our day. The treasure. God is going out and seeking out that treasure. These Jews that are coming to faith. But not just Jews alone. 
Gentiles too. Look at the next parable. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls. Where are pearls found? Where are pearls found? In the sea. What is the sea? So what are the pearls? Gentiles. Gentiles. How are pearls formed? Through suffering. A little speck of dirt gets into that oyster and it's irritated, you know? Anybody ever have a, a, a heel spur? Whew, they're painful, aren't they? Think of a heel spur when you think of a pearl being formed. And it's really irritating, isn't it? Yeah, you ever get shots in your heel that break that up? And, mm, that precious pearl of great value is only formed through suffering, through pain. Don't you understand? Our value, our value is increased as we go through the sufferings in this life that the great physician has prescribed for us. And when you go through those sufferings, understanding that God has ordained it, that God is sovereign, and, and you say, Lord, what is it I need to learn in this? Oh, you become so much more valuable as he covers you in his grace and covers you in his grace and covers you in his grace. But God, take this thorn in my flesh away from me, Paul prayed. And what did God say? I'll cover you in my grace. I'll cover you in my grace. That pearl of great price. That's the, that's the Gentiles. Look. Like a man, a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. And some would say, well, well, the pearl of great price is Jesus, and you sold all that. What did you do for Jesus? What do you offer Jesus? What do you bring to Jesus? My sin, that's all I bring to him. That's all I offer him. My rebellion, my sin, my inability to do anything that's worth anything apart from him. My best works of righteousness are as filthy rags, he said. Filthy rags. No, 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 no. We didn't give anything. Jesus gave everything and sought us out. Isn't that right? Yeah. Then you have uh, the, the, the dragnet. Again, verse 47, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered in some of every kind. The sea is what? Of every kind? All nations, for whosoever will, right? Is there any exclusion in Christ? No, 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 no. We believe in the exclusivity of Christ alone. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me, through me, and me. There's, listen, there's salvation in no other name under heaven. The religious pluralism that we embrace today is an abomination. It's heretical. 80% of Christendom, listen to me now, 80% of Christendom, when asked the question, can good people of other faiths go to heaven, what do they say? Yes. Is that true? Yes. No! You can't be saved and believe that. You understand that? If you believe that, then you can't be saved. You don't believe in the sufficiency of Christ alone, by faith in Christ alone. Hmm. The dragnet. No, no, no. It, it, there's only one way, but that way is open to all. The kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea, into the world, gathering some of every kind, which when it is full, drew into the shore, and they sat down and gathered and 
the, the good into vessels and threw the bad away. And so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and separate the wicked from the just and cast them into a furnace of fire, and there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. This will be the judgment that occurs at the end of the age, and it's predominantly a judgment of the Gentile world at the second coming of Christ, where the wheat is separated from the tares, the sheep from the goats, the just from the wicked. Listen, you know, they, they, you're not getting away with anything. I'm not talking to you. I must be talking to people on the Internet. You people are playing games with Christ, playing games with your salvation, playing games with your Christianity. Not you. No, you must be other people, you people. You need to stop it. God will not be mocked. Your sin will find you. He knows everything there is to know about. He knows you better than you know yourself. And the only pe person you're deceiving is yourself and, and others. Well, we can be deceived so easily, can't we? Especially if we listen with our ears, right? I hear people make the claim that they're Christian all the Don't let that Monday night football game fool you. I'm, I'm glad he recovered. I'm, I understand he's a, he's a good Christian man, praise God. But just because a couple of people on the on sports network prayed, and just because you had a, a group of a football team kneel down, at the, that meant nothing. True revival is marked by a transformation of your life. When everything about you changes, when all of your appetites now are for righteousness, holiness, a love of the good, and you abhor what is evil. The householder. And Jesus said to them, have you understood all these things? And what did they say? No, did they? No. Of course not. Now, now listen to me. You know, we, you need to be humble enough that when someone's explaining something to you, if you don't understand what they're talking about, then say so. When someone says something to me and they, and they use a phrase or an acronym, I say, I don't know what you're talking about. What does that mean? How often do I tell, I'll tell somebody something, I'll share something with them, I say, now, do you understand what I just said? They say, yes, I said, what did I say? Duh. <laughs> Duh. You know, now listen, I don't ever, ever, ever want anybody to go out of my presence not understanding what I'm trying to tell you. You may not agree with me, and that's okay. You don't have to agree. You can be wrong. <laughs> but I want you to understand and so if I say anything that you don't understand at any, at any service, you uh, please, I, I'd like nothing more than to talk about the message and help you understand what we're all trying to understand again. Right? But here they did what everybody does. You understand what I'm saying to you now? Do you, do you get it? And what did they say? And did they? Not at all. Not, not at all. Now, aren't we glad that... The revelation that God gives us, the understanding of his word, it's progressive. I, I'm just so thankful for how he continues to increase my understanding and yours. And remember, in the world, seeing is believing. But in God's economy, believing is... Yeah. How many times, how many times I've opened the word and I read and I said, God, God I, I, I believe it, but I don't understand it. I, I don't understand it. I, I need understanding. And it won't be very long at all. All of a sudden, the understanding comes. I'll, I'll listen to a teaching. I'll read a book. I'll look at a commentary. Whew, wow, thank you, Lord. So our understanding, our revelation is progressive. And, and listen, don't ever think you've arrived. The more you know, the more you realize you don't know. You don't know. 
Think, think of your knowledge as an island, right? You got this island. This, see this banner here? Any of the banners. Look at the banners. Okay, the edge of the banner, the periphery of the perimeter of the banner, that's, that's, that's your ignorance. The banner itself is your knowledge. So as the banner increases, what happens to your ignorance? Yeah. That's why I can say, honestly, the more you know, the more you... Yeah, the more I know, the more I know I'm ignorant of. Wow. How come I... How did I not know that? You ever ask that? You ever ask that to yourself? Why didn't I know that? <laughs> Do you understand? Yeah, Lord, we understand. <laughs> and then he said to them, Therefore, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things new and things old. Whose kingdom is it? Jesus's. Who's the scribe? Jesus. What's he bringing out to them? Listen to me. He's bringing out to them an understanding of both the old and what is new. He doesn't destroy what was old. He reveres, respects, and honors what was old. But he's also giving them that which was new. So many of the old covenants were so valuable, so meaningful, so treasured. But now we have an understanding of the new covenant. We understood the theocratic kingdom of Israel, that God's desire to use Israel to be a nation among the nations, that through your descendants, Abraham, all the world would be blessed. But we also understand that he's grafted in the Gentiles, right? Now we have to stop. There's one more kingdom, aspect of the kingdom that I need to share with you, and that'll be next week. And I know I gave you a lot of information, and maybe I'll make copies of my notes. You can have it for next week. But the messianic or millennial kingdom is the very next kingdom to come about. Remember that the theocratic kingdom ended. We began the times of the Gentiles. And within the times of the Gentiles, from the Babylonian period to the second coming of Christ, is what we call the church age. We are in the church age currently, and that door is about to close. And when the church age is over, the mystery kingdom is no more. Because the Lord is going to rapture the church out. And that church will be comprised of both Jews and Gentiles. Then he brings about which kingdom? Messianic kingdom. The messianic millennial. Christ reigning millennial for a thousand years. Wow. And listen to me, beloved. Revelation 20, it is literal. Six times, a thousand years, a thousand years, a thousand years. And he wasn't speaking of that in a figurative sense. A thousand years is a day, a day is... How long have we been here? Almost the end of the 6,000th year. We're about to begin the seventh day of the last thousand year period of human history on this planet as we know it. Thank you, Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Next week, we'll continue. Pastor David, got a closing song for us. Shall we stand?